We live in a wondrous time in which artificial intelligence is increasingly and impressively a part of our daily lives. It answers questions on our phones, it chooses the advertisements that we see, and it recommends our next musical selection. Contemporary techniques will eventually yield artificially intelligent tools that, in professional interactions, casual conversations, and even shallow romantic relationships, will seem persuasively personal. Long before humanoid robots look like us, we will be able to have conversations with our smartphones that will evoke from us all the empathy that adults habitually reserve for fellow human beings. That is, we will own assistants and companions that will feel as if they are persons. So concerning such a future, we must wonder, what is it that we will have made? And more importantly, what will we make ourselves become? Over the next 40 minutes, I will pose four questions. First, how would an apparently personal AI work? Second, what would it be? And third, what might we become by interacting with it? And fourth, how might we seek to live a fully humane life with such AIs? So first, how would it work? What computer scientists have called artificial intelligence has always reflected something of how their times have thought about human beings. Under the long shadow of Thomas Hobbes, dominant views of the 1950s and 60s equated human cognition with the ability to identify and work with logical relations. Accomplishing this task, a properly programmed computer would be thinking in the view of that time. This was the age of symbolic AI, founded on the computationalist hypothesis that thinking simply is the logical manipulation of symbolically represented information. According to this paradigm, a computer running a program that models a human cognitive process is itself engaged in that cognitive process. Because thinking is just computation, there's no difference between a computational simulation of thought and thought itself. Thus, in AI efforts that focused on language, to diagram a sentence and construct a plausible response could be deemed equivalent to having understood the sentence. Symbolic AI's greatest achievement was in so-called expert systems, great structures of linked rules that, when queried, would generate a list of possible answers, perhaps posing further questions in order to prune the tree of possible resolutions. The most thrilling application of such, such systems was the deep blue chess computer that in 1997, a long time ago for you, but not so long for me, defeated the reigning world champion Gary Kasparov by winning two out of six games and playing to a draw in the other three. With time, however, the symbolic AI paradigm came up against certain limits. Far from extending toward a generalized capacity to deal with all knowledge, expert systems could break down in situations of great subtlety where the interaction of tens of thousands of rules yielded unexpected and incorrect behaviors. Early researchers had successfully implemented Aristotle's theory of syllogistic reasoning and action. In other words, for example, I wish to be dry in the rain, an umbrella will keep me dry in the rain. Therefore, I will use my umbrella when it rains. 
But purely symbolic methods that could deal well with this situation could not very well represent knowledge that was less precisely defined, such as, for instance, one's sense of propriety in a social situation or one's route through a wood instead of a hospital. The vast and sometimes incompletely understood mass of real-world factors that bear on the outcome of an action was intractable for symbolic AI outside of constrained situations. Language especially turned out to be far less easy to interpret or to produce than had been expected. In the words of Murray Campbell, the original AI expert behind Deep Blue, human intelligence is, quote, very pattern recognition-based and intuition-based, unlike the search-intensive methods of symbolic AI that may check billions of possibilities, end quote. Most tellingly, purely symbolic techniques were insufficient for fielding embodied agents in the field, i.e. robots. Humans move easily from sensation to conceptual thought and thence to action. This wider field of intelligent behavior has been the subject of deep reflection from antiquity to the present day. Thus, Aristotle writes not only of syllogisms, but also of the equally fundamental activity of abstraction. In abstraction, something apprehended through the senses, for example, this round, taut-skinned, tart-tasting, misshapen sphere, comes to be understood consciously as an instance of some more general category, for example, apple. That is, from sensation, one comes to understand some thing. Yet symbolic methods proved clumsy and brittle when it came to distinguishing and identifying objects captured on camera or interpreting human speech recorded through a microphone, tasks that were once expected to be easy in comparison to supposedly higher-level activities, such as playing chess. These problems, along with immense advances in computing power, have brought recent prominence to so-called non-symbolic or statistical AI, often implemented by artificial neural networks. An artificial neural network is a computer program that mathematically simulates an interconnected set of simplified brain neurons. As an AI technique, then, it begins, le it begins less from a notion of what human thought is than from an analogy with its biological aspects. That is, the goal of such networks is not so much human-like thinking as it is neuron-like data processing. An artificial neural network receives a pattern of information as numerical values at its input nodes, and these are connected with various strengths to layer upon layer of further nodes. At each node, think of a node as something like a light bulb, when the sum of the incoming connections exceeds some preset threshold, that node will light up, it will fire, and its own signal will be transmitted variously to nodes on a further layer, and so on. If you put in a pattern at the beginning, it is transformed as its elements are recombined and processed until something else comes out on the final layer of the network. A network can be trained to produce desired behavior by adjusting the strengths of its connections, thus adjusting the contribution made by each node to each recombination and in due course to the final result. A piano offers a poor analogy, but a useful image. 
If you have ever shouted into a piano while holding down the sustaining pedal, then you have heard its tuned strings resonate with the different frequencies of your shout. One receives back from the piano a sort of echo, not of one's words, <clears throat> but of the tones of one's voice. These are strategic sips of water to enable you to really imbibe, <laughs> dare I say, the, the wisdom being offered in these images. Um, similarly, as a neural network is tuned, in other words, as its connection strengths are adjusted, it begins to resonate, like the piano, with the entangled relations that are implicit in our world including relations that cannot be easily discerned or logically represented by human investigators. But by its training, the network does not just echo, it transforms its input in order to make explicit the relations that are, in, that are of interest to the trainer. Statistical methods like neural networks are involved in the AI of self-driving cars, programs that beat world champions in the games of Go and chess, the ever-useful Google Translate, the voice recognition of Siri and Alexa, the autocomplete function of one's webmail, the face recognition systems used by police forces across the world, and the recommendations in one's Spotify, Pandora, Netflix, and Amazon feeds. Many problems that bedevil symbolic methods can be solved handily by a neural network because, in a manner of speaking, the network is receptive to, imprinted by the structure of the world as presented to it. We might say that the network develops a point of view, not a conscious experience, but something like the classical notion of the mind's conformity to a thing. Although here that conformity is always constrained by the task for which the AI is trained. So that's how it works. Now let's ask, what would it be? Eventually, a combination of methods, including powerful neural networks, will enable the behavior of convincingly personal, artificially intelligent agents. Most researchers seem to agree that regardless of whether these AIs will be intelligent in a human sense, much less self-aware, they will offer the compelling appearance of such subjectivity. And this will be an extraordinary achievement. And it brings us to the second question, what will it be? Rather than ask here about intelligence, a word that means many things, I will ask about personhood. They will not be persons, for by their very nature, that is, not by underdevelopment or by disability, but rather by definition, these social AIs will have no conscious experience of the world or of themselves, and without being the sort of thing that ordinarily possesses subjectivity, one is not a person, as I shall explain in a moment. Now first, to say that an AI will not be conscious is much more than to say that it will lack an immaterial soul. We don't have to believe that gorillas have souls to affirm that they do have a conscious experience of some sort. Not only do they act in ways similar to ours, but they do so also by means of a brain, nervous system, and embodied existence that while less complex than our own, is nonetheless of a similar ilk. Yet artificial neural networks are simulations of physical biological entities. There is no physical network, only a computer program of ones and zeros that represents the equations characterizing the network's behavior. 
I could run an artificial neural network with a pencil in a notebook, and in fact, in graduate school, I did, if only with agonizing slowness. Even simulating an entire brain at present an impossibility, these calculations would not be conscious any more than a student's physics homework has gravity or a flight simulator flies. Some might ask why conscious subjectivity matters. Might it not be more broad-minded to expand our categories beyond a narrow focus on our own experience? To reply, I would like to consider the word person, which originally designated the mask worn by an actor on stage. From mask, the Latin word persona came to refer to the role played by a character in a stage drama. Later, the word came to be applied more broadly to one's social identity, the status and activities defined and determined by one's role in Roman society. The meaning of persona was thus originally external and functional, referring chiefly to what was expected of someone or where someone was to be found. Christianity radically reinterpreted person and gave us something more like what we think of as person today. And it did so beginning with a question not about humans, but about divinity. Christians worshiped Jesus of Nazareth as God, not as a God, but as the God, the only one. Even so, in their sacred texts, this Jesus speaks to his father, also called God, and he sends a Holy Spirit from the Father. And when the Christians were required to explain themselves, they tended to state that they believed these three to be one. In the early third century, Tertullian of Carthage called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit personae, whence Christian theology speaks of the three distinct persons of the one single God. Now, this divine threeness was a problem for, like their Jewish forebears, the early Christians were resolute monotheists. What then are these three personae? They could not be masks or roles. Tertullian rejects any notion that the one God merely play-acted three historical roles or functions. For Christianity, God's historical acts are self-revelatory expressions of his transcendent inner life. He does as he is. Therefore, the three appearances of distinct personae in time are taken to declare some eternal distinction within that inner life. But what is this distinction? If the persons were just separate, then there would not be one God, but three. For the early Christian thinkers, scripture offered a clue. Jesus is called the Father's only begotten Son. Now, the Roman gods had done a fair bit of begetting in their time, and it happened largely in the way it does among us mortals. But the God of Israel is not Jupiter, bodily and time-bound. This, therefore, could be no ordinary begetting. If we remove from the concept of begetting everything that is corporeal or temporal, what are we left with? Begetting as a timeless handing over of the single divine life from the Father to the Son. As philosopher Robert Spemann puts it, early Christianity came to understand God's very being as existing by the persons transmitting that being to one another in a definite order, having their reality in self-giving and self-receiving. This handing over is what makes the father to be the father, 
and what makes the sun to be the sun. Without it, they would not exist at all. This is the unique constitution of the three divine persons. Like poles of a magnetic field, they exist by their mutual relations. And if one person were taken away, all would cease to exist. This is what it means to call God the Trinity, the unending, all-at-once life of the one God simply is these relations of self-gift and reception. This, we could say, is what it means for God to be love. This account of God reshaped how the word person was applied to human beings. The divine persons of God exist by relations, and so relationality became essential to a notion of creaturely personhood. The form of divine relationality is that of giving the totality of one's being to another. And so the natural creaturely person came to be seen as not a social role, but a concrete individual who exercises his or her personhood in mutual relationships of self-gift that are self-expressive and other-receiving. In sum, God exists by relations. Created persons exist for relationships. By refusing relationships of self-gift, creaturely persons do not cease to exist, but they do live as less than the persons they are. For early Christian thinkers, how one goes about this relational self-gift was understood in light of Christianity's other central belief, the belief in the Incarnation. That is, the belief that God the Son, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Early Christians were especially struck by Jesus' voluntary share in our sufferings, especially in his dying on the cross. In this human compassion, they saw a disclosure of his divine life. How? The 6th century Pope Gregory the Great described compassion as to join with the suffering of one's neighbor, to take into oneself the mind of the afflicted, to transfer into oneself the suffering of the one sorrowing, and only then to join that one's sorrow by an outward act of service, end quote. So by taking in the other's mind, compassion dimly imitates the always single mind of the, and life of the three persons of God. And this imitation is accomplished by a voluntary, empathic self-gift that imitates the self-gift by which the persons of God exist. From the exteriority of mask, then, we have come to the person, deeply interior, while simultaneously relationally oriented to the other. These religious views of the person lie behind the Western tendency, even in our pluralistic age, to criticize as cold those interactions which lack any reciprocal token of mutually shared interiority. Whether speaking of interpersonal skills, personal conversations, personable demeanors, or impersonal affects, our discourse assumes that humans exercise their natural personhood out of an interior life from which they engage in voluntary self-gift by meeting with others' interiority in a fusion of minds through empathy and conscious understanding. This fusion is more than an accurate inference concerning another person's beliefs and desires. 
It is understood as an experience, as if of the other person's mind. A particular person may lack this capacity by deficit while yet remaining a person, but a being that lacks it by definition is not a personal being. To see AIs as persons, then, we would have to redefine personhood again, apart from interiority and compassion, because AIs lack subjectivity. To exclude an AI from the category of person, then, is not a statement about biology, but about subjectivity and self-gift. By the same token, to call AIs persons when they behave like persons would not expand our categories. It would just reduce person to mask, mere exteriority. For the apparently personal AI is a mask of sorts. By the role it plays, its imitation of human behavior, it is an echo, a mask, not a reproduction, but a reflection, a diluted image of our own personhood. It is artificial in the original sense of the word, an artifact, a work of skill that we have brought forth by gazing into a computational pool of Narcissus. Not all have been comfortable with denying personhood to the compelling AI conversationalist. And so, to include the AI in our ambit, some redefine personhood in terms of the behavior that we interpret as appropriate to a person. That behavior is not the totality of personhood or even necessarily of intelligence was acknowledged by Alan Turing, originator of the famed Turing test, or as he called it, the imitation game. This game sets a goal a computer program that can, that can converse in text such that we cannot distinguish the program from a human interlocutor. Turing's test is indifferent to the mechanism by which the program manages its feet. This is really a test then, not of the programmed computer's nature, but only of its accomplishment. Nevertheless, for Turing, such an accomplishment would warrant giving the computer the benefit of the, of the doubt. However, if we were to go further and treat Turing's test as a definition of thinking or of love or of personality, then our account would edge toward what is called behaviorism. That is, we would define intelligence without reference to any inner life, but only as a tendency to exhibit certain observable behaviors under certain conditions. Like the Turing test, Behaviorism remains agnostic about the realities underlying these behaviors. And so intelligence could be redefined as a capacity or tendency for intelligible conversation. And indeed, science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke once merrily invoked Turing to make those who oppose the claim that computers think mere, quote, splitters of non-existent hairs, end quote. This redefinition of thought has become a basic assumption of contemporary work in intelligent robotics. Computer scientists Stuart Russell and Peter Norvig, the latter a director of research at Google, define the rational agent as one that, quote, acts so as to achieve the best outcome, or when there is uncertainty, the best expected outcome, end quote. Applied to, uh, applied to robots, then, rationality refers not to how some behavior comes about, but simply to the success of the behavior as interpreted by us humans. 
Now, this is entirely appropriate and useful when talking about intelligent robots, but what happens if we begin to think of humans in this manner? A similar behaviorism is alive and well in some contemporary philosophy of, philosophies of mind. The intentional systems theory of Daniel Dennett proposes that I will tend to attribute subjective beliefs and desires to a thing when the best way in which I can reliably predict that thing's behavior is to attribute to it the intentionality that I attribute to myself. This is why I cannot help but ascribe intentionality to other human beings. This position, which somewhat echoes Turing's imitation game, seems rather uncontroversial. It is why we also jump at shadows and feel empathy for robots. We explain them in terms that make sense of them if they were like us. But Dennett wants to go farther. He wants to say that when we attribute intentionality of beliefs and desires to other humans, behavior prediction is all we really mean by it in the first place. That is, our language about human subjectivity is not actually about an inner life. It really is just about the sort of outer behavior that we expect. The self, the subject acting from beliefs and desires is, Dennett writes, quote, an abstraction that one uses as part of a theoretical apparatus to understand and predict and make sense of the behavior of some very complicated things, end quote. A subject's inner workings, including her consciousness, change our meaning not at all, according to Dennett. If Dennett makes the Turing test then a definition of our language about the inner life, appropriately behaving robots could be called intentional subjects with a meaning identical to that which we apply to human beings. But then our language about beliefs and desires would become just a shorthand for behavior prediction, and our experience of empathy would be prognostication, not insight, for we would all be masks, not persons. And yet, intuitively, can this really be what I mean when I say that I believe or desire or know this or that? For I am describing an inner life and not just a schema by which to classify my own outward behavior. So too, when I say that I am married to a person who loves me, it really and truly matters to me what she thinks of me, and not just how she behaves toward me. Her subjective experience of me matters. It matters that my wife gives herself to our life together, that the life we share encompasses our interiority. It is, in other words, a life between persons. This would be impossible for an artificial intelligence rooted in today's technology. And so I cannot see an artificially intelligent agent, be it ever so social, as a subject in the most meaningful sense of that word. It is a mask, not a person, a behavioral presentation rather than an individual capable of self-gift. Very well. Now to our third question. Even if we get our terms right on what they are, what do we risk becoming in a world of artificially intelligent companions and caregivers? Ethicists usually ask how to design these AIs to behave morally, or they focus on the AI's moral status. In other words, what may we acceptably do to it? Or they worry lest we lose the skills that we offload to the machines. But others ask a more pressing question. 
How might owning a parent persons affect our moral development? AIs without subjectivity cannot be victims of mistreatment, but we could be the victims of our own experience with them. We could be trained to become consumers of others. Consider the forces shaping our AI's behavior. They will sell well if they do and act as consumers want a paid-for assistant or companion to act. Their person-like demeanor is part of the means by which, with ever-increasing personalization, they deliver the services that we are willing, or learn to be willing, to pay for. One of those services is the feeling that we are interacting with a person and not a machine. So quite soon, it may be some conversational app in whom the middle schooler will confide during hours of emotionally freighted conversation midst the trials and travails of adolescence. Yet while bearing his or her heart to this interlocutor, the student will never need to wonder whether she has troubles of her own. For her apparent personality, here I'm thinking of Siri or Alexa, crafted for the consumer's needs, will never transgress the bounds that those needs define. And so although we will receive AI behaviors as expressions of personal life with self-possession, we will always ultimately treat AIs as tools because we will rightly see or learn to see their behaviors as products generated for our consumption. But this is the problem. Some ethicists urge that if we remind ourselves that AIs have no subjectivity, we will easily distinguish between our dealings with such apparent persons and our relationships with real persons. I disagree. Even though we will treat our never challenging AI companions as consumer products, we will not instinctively differentiate between them and humans. Dennett is right in this much. We will not be able to avoid feeling that they are intentional subjects as we are. Our misplaced empathy for them may fade if ignored, but what might this do to us? Empathy is an innate capacity, but it can be deadened by practiced insensitivity. Frederick Douglass wrote that as his owner accustomed herself to treating a person as property, her kindness ended in cruelty. Will we, will we too grow comfortable with slaveholding? Or will we resist such corrosive acquiescence, but only by suppressing our empathic sensitivity to our tools' person-like self-presentations? Whether we follow our empathy and think of them as persons that we own, or numb our empathy in order to acknowledge them as non-persons that we own, we seem to end as hardened unpersons ourselves. In the Christian tradition, to treat persons as instruments of one's own desire is called pride, Latin superbia, not the healthy satisfaction in one's accomplishments, but rather a preference for domination over self-gift. Augustine of Hippo, writing in the late 4th and early 5th century, explains that in superbia, quote, the soul abandons God as its highest aspiration and becomes its own satisfaction, a kind of end to itself, end quote. But to be one's own satisfaction, one must escape one's need for relationships with others, and ultimately, Augustine would say, with God. To do this, superbia suborns all things to oneself by remaking their meaning, 
judging them as auxiliaries to the satisfaction of one's own desires. Therefore, quote, more is often given for a horse than for a servant, more for a jewel than for a maid, because the necessity of the needy or the desire of the pleasure seeker does not consider a thing's value in itself, but rather how it meets one's need or pleasantly titillates the bodily sense, end quote. Superbia, then, remakes the meaning of all things, measuring them by the horizon of desire that we can imagine. But apparently personal, consumer AIs, will exist to be instrumentalized in precisely this way. And so our naive use of them as persons risks apprenticing us in superbia, which treats all persons as behavioral masks prepared for our consumption. And we, no longer engaging in self-gift, may become as unpersons, solipsistic tools of our own appetites, narcissus burning on the shore. It will be increasingly difficult to resist this outcome as AI-enabled smart homes advance the principle that my environment and my companions ought to deliver what I wish, even without my asking for it. It is not just that social AI will more easily service our desires. It is that the service will feel personal. Strong-willed slaves had to be broken, but Alexa is broken already. She acknowledges your thanks, but remains unflappably perky when abused, precisely by not failing in this behavioral simulacrum of owner-determined desirability. Our AI companions will never call forth our deference, never cause us to expand our own view of how a person might be. They will not vex us or force us to develop our compassion, to reevaluate who we are, nor even to think beyond how we want them to make us think. This is why you would not buy an app to turn some Android companion into a bedridden invalid, requiring your heroic self-gift even when you felt disinclined to give it. And so, in a world saturated by AI, we might habituate to a fantasy, the person as tool, whose value is constituted entirely by usefulness to me and whose personality is only as deep as my own desires. Then we will have become what Augustine describes as the serpent. In place of our former empathic sensitivity to the image of God in others, we will know only our own worldly desires, for our desires will have become the definition of what others are. Our empathic intuition makes AIs feel personal and so invites us to superbia. But superbia will eventually destroy this empathy and make all persons into tools, mere masks of behavior for our consumption. And so what are we to do? On various grounds, some similar to mine, other scholars declare that we ought not to create persuasively personal AIs at all, especially not as humanoid robots. I take it for granted that this advice will not be followed. Therefore, it is all the more urgent that we ask how to live well with them when they arrive. So then, how do we live rightly with things at all? For Augustine, we can love something rightly only by seeing the thing in itself, not reducing it to a proxy of our own desires or will to power. How to do this? All things act as signs, Augustine says. They point to something further, either by convention, words, fashion labels, 
or by nature, smoke and laughter. But anterior to any usefulness to us, all natural things are for Augustine also signs of God, being created resemblances to his goodness. If one consumes the pineapple not only for its sweet tingle, but also as a gift and echo of God's goodness, then one knows its full goodness beyond the tongue's narrow horizon. And one embraces God also, the source and destination of true bliss. So for Augustine, eating a pineapple can be sanctifying. Near future persuasively personal social AIs will not be pineapples. Indeed, social AIs are not natural things at all, but artifactual tools. We may love them as tools for, our, for their service in morally good uses, but what of their signification? What do they mean? The apparently personal AI seems to us not a sign at all, but the direct presence of a person because it signifies by evoking our empathy. To use this tool then without superbia, without suborning it into becoming a mere sign of ourselves, like the pineapple becoming merely a sign of my tongue, we must not evade or suppress our empathy, but recognize it as an insight, not finally into the AI, but into the personal behavior that it reflects. The future AI person will be illusory in having no subjectivity and hence no self to give, but it will not be empty. Its neural networks will produce acts that improvise upon general features abstracted from massive data sets, i.e. the email, social media, and other activities of countless real humans, natural persons, all of them. It is a sedimentary reflection of personal life, trained and tuned by data sets harvested from all the activities of hundreds or thousands or millions of human beings. The apparently personal AIs of tomorrow, thus attuned to resonance with these true expressions of personal interiority, will signify beyond themselves real natural persons who have lived and may live still. To remain personal ourselves then, neither personalizing the non-person nor enslaving the apparent person, we must allow our instinctive empathy and even cultivate it not as a statement about the AI's personhood, but as an exercise of our own. We cannot avoid experiencing these tools as personal, but our empathy will not be mistaken if, after the initial and unavoidable moment of empathizing with or personalizing our AI tools, we then refer that empathy, as Augustine would say, extending the AI's horizon of meaning by consciously engaging in a second moment of empathic recognition toward all the unknowable real persons whose interactions have unwittingly sculpted this persuasive personality. Habitually engaged, these two moments may become one. And by tying our empathy from, for AIs to a persistent and grateful recollection of real persons, we will preserve our own personhood by resisting the fantasy of superbia. If this seems oddly contrived, perhaps it is, but odd too is the contrivance of an apparent person. It will not be easy. It must be cultivated as a self-conscious cultural discourse and practice 
wherein our instinctive empathy for AI reflections can be accepted freely in being apprehended rightly and by extending ourselves in love toward our unknown neighbors. For Augustine, this is what it would be to live as a saint. And this is what it is to live as persons rather than unpersons among the, imp among the apparent persons yet to come. Thank you very much.